there's an often used expression out there called the honeymoon phase. And it doesn't just apply to a marriage. It's that time of newness after something has begun, where all is well and there's a glow of celebration about everything. Of course, the thing about a honeymoon phase is that it's temporary. After a while, reality sets in, and the hard work has to begin in earnest. And sometimes, it's only after the honeymoon phase that some big secrets are revealed. And so today, we continue through Foundation, as the true nature of Selden's plan is made known. We'll talk about the burdens of leadership and the balance between cunning strategy and overly secretive control. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Stephanie Yunker. I'm Jacob Yunker. And I'm Jason Stark. This is a podcast where we go through the sci-fi novels and stories of Isaac Asimov, one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. And uh, Jacob and Stephanie are relative newcomers to Asimov's works. I'm a little bit more seasoned of a reader. And together we go through and talk about the themes and the meanings and the relevance of the books for today as well. So we are continuing our discussion of Foundation. We talked about part one last time, and now we are dipping into part two, entitled The Encyclopedists. First impressions, Jacob and Stephanie? It was tense. Oh, man. It was real tense. There was a lot of conversations. There was a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of different calls to authority, and it was just tense. I feel like I'm always waiting for Asimov to get where he's going. Like, even at the end of books, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm waiting for him to get somewhere. So I, especially with this section that kind of stops before you get to the climax, before you get to the solution, you're kind of like, ah, just tell me what you want. But it's obvious. It's obvious as all get out. <laughs> and you mentioned conversations. It does seem like a lot of the, a lot of the activity in these chapters, and this is very consistent through a lot of Asimov, it consists of people talking to each other. The big ideas and themes come through long conversations, not as typically through moments of described action and things like that. Yeah, it feels like a TV show that I would sit down and watch with my mother. This this book, I think it really, he did a really good job with those conversations. I, I actually really enjoyed them. I felt like I was sitting back and watching tea, which Ameri- <laughs> which apparently, I have to remember this, which is American slang for like watching dramatic conversations where people are like, ooh, what's going to happen next? It's like a soap opera. And, I, and I'll say, I, th- I think it's well done. Um, I think oh, that yeah. as a concept and as an Asimovian sort of device that he uses, Sometimes it can become kind of a liability, but that's not to say that it's it's poorly done. I think in a lot of places, and this section included, it's quite well done, and it really does the job. It actually reminded me a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation, which we've been watching through, because Jacob has never, you know, ha- has never seen the full st- series of, of Star Trek. 
But you know when Picard starts to give a speech, you're like, all right, now we're going to get the thesis of this episode. And I know for a fact, too, that there's plenty of Asimov where it is more descriptive in nature and yet just as powerful. Um, I just feel like, especially in earlier Asimov, it's not quite... uh, it's 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 just more conversationally based so it's just a thing i'm i'm already noticing the improvement of his writing and i can tell like we've talked a lot about he had a lot of rejection letters that had good critiques in them i feel like he's picking up and improving and learning and i'm really enjoying it it's kind of cool to watch yeah you know i also wanted to bring up a few more little thoughts on psychohistory Actually, thoughts that have been brought up by listeners and people who have been noticing us on social media had a guy by the name of Michael Derwin reach out to us, who is Director of Social Intelligence and Communities at PRA Health Sciences, this group that he's working with, doing work similar to psychohistory, according to him, reading behavior of millions to predict things from elections to illness prior to diagnosis. Wow. It's something that they're just getting started on. That's very impressive. Part of the work is to understand patients and their relationship with their disease and treatment, um, looking at identifying social media behavior clues that can predict diseases prior to diagnosis. He also said that in 2015, he was using social listening uh, to look at U.S. conversations around the candidates for the presidential election that was coming up at that time. And um, I asked him about that. I asked, what, what is social listening? And that is choosing a topic and gathering keywords and phrases that are common to online discussions on the topics. And it's about combing inter- the internet for like public posts on things. And then like using artificial intelligence to organize that data into patterns and essentially try to predict things through that. So that actually does sound remarkably similar, if not psychohistory, <laughs> like the beginnings of psychohistory. Also, recent research on vaccine hesitancy, um, where they accumulated almost two million posts about it. So, I mean, when you when you're talking about data points, it does seem as though social media is a huge. Uh, pool from which to draw and potentially draw comparisons. So I was very thankful to Michael for reaching out uh, and and talking about that. Also, we had a post just today, the day that we're recording, uh, which is January 9th, a response to the episode we just did on part one of Foundation. And I was thankful for the commenter who said that as far as psychohistory is concerned, you know, it's important to keep in mind that we are talking about a setting which is several, several millennia into the future, and you have to account for passage of time, advancement of technology that you just can't really posit today when talking about psychohistory as something that is impossible to do. And especially when you think about 25 million inhabited worlds, if psychohistory is based upon tracking the projected behavior of masses of people. I mean, this is such a huge number of people that we, I, I think it'd probably be really hard to even wrap our minds around it. So I thought that was, that was good to consider. 
Yeah, that that person who commented makes a wonderful point because one thing that we run into is we can only go back so far in history when until a point where we hit that history was recorded differently and like obviously data and science is really kind of young compared to how far back we want to look. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the foundations universe, like the commenter said, man, they've had data around for thousands of years, which means they've got thousands of years worth of data to look back on as a historian to make forward judgments. And I'm like, that's that's a good point, but actually. What's to say that the way that they t- take in data and the way that they count history is going to stay the same? I mean, the Enlightenment so vastly changes how people think. I mean... And, and then the age of technology has vastly, well, I don't know if you could say that, that it's changed, but I think it's probably changed people at least some, you know? So it seems like there would continue to be different ways of reckoning and different ways of thinking about things and recording things. Uh, I think you're right, and I think the point Asimov brings up is a stagnation. What do you mean? Like the difference in, in um, how people think... In, a, in Foundation. So in the first book, we had Harry Seldon pointing out that there's a mass stagnation of thought and action, and Hardin pointing out the same thing on uh, Terminus 50 years later. So I think the change of thought that you're talking about through the ages is still present. Um, Asimov is just bringing up stagnation as being the outcome. All right, before we go any further, we're going to do a synopsis of part two. So just as a matter of course, we do this to either recap for those who have read it, but it's been a long time, or if you don't even really want to read it, then we offer you a synopsis so that you can kind of track with what we're talking about either way. So here we go with a recap of part two, The Encyclopedists. Fifty years have passed since the Encyclopedia Foundation was established on Terminus. Dr. Louis Perrin sits at his desk, working feverishly and proudly. He is head of Terminus's board of trustees and is highly dedicated to the task of finishing Volume 1 of Encyclopedia Galactica, the treasury of knowledge by which Harry Seldon intended to help humanity through his predicted collapse of the Galactic Empire. Enter Salvor Hardin, Terminus City's first mayor, head of the municipal government that has been established due to Terminus's growing population. The nearby world of Anacreon has proclaimed itself a kingdom. Supply lines from Trantor have now been cut off. While Hardin is concerned and wants action, Peren is agitated and trusts that the imperial government which supports Terminus will solve the matter. At any rate, for him and for the board, the encyclopedia is of prime importance and local politics are of no matter. As Hardin leaves Peren's office, he also informs him that an envoy is being sent to Terminus from Anacreon. The envoy is Anselm Hote Rodrik, a nobleman of some military prowess. In touring Terminus City, Rodrik is unimpressed with the encyclopedia project, but impressed with Terminus's unexploited land and baffled by the lack of feudal society. In private company, he discusses his purposes with Hardin and Perret. Anacreon is interested in protecting Terminus. The surrounding kingdoms have been at war, and Anacreon has just won a war against neighboring Smyrno. Terminus would be a valuable prize to them, unless, of course, 
Anacreon offered to safeguard them, and of course they would need to be compensated for such help. Hardin, sensing Roderick's duplicity, makes it known that Terminus is a planet with hardly any metals, meaning no gold. And Roderick suggests that Anacreon could accept some of Terminus's empty territory. But when Hardin craftily reveals that Terminus utilizes nuclear energy, Roderick is nonplussed and cuts the meeting off. Evidently, the surrounding kingdoms have lost this technology. Later, at a meeting of the Board of Trustees, Piren announces that Lord Dorwin, Chancellor of the Empire, will be arriving soon, and it is assumed by the Board that, somehow, the Empire will solve the Anacreonian problem. Hardin, however, again presses for more direct action. Anacreon temporarily has been held off by the belief that Terminus has nuclear weapons, but this will not last, and the people of Terminus, who have known the planet as their only home, need security and strong leadership. The board argues that the encyclopedia is the number one priority. The argument is going nowhere, but Jord Farah, a quite thoughtful member of the board, offers a thought. In one month is the 50th anniversary of the establishing of the Foundation, when Harry Seldon's special vault is set to open. What will be inside, and how will it affect them? Lord Dorwin arrives with a special treaty that has been established between the Empire and Anacreon, and offers a very generalized assurance about the Empire's concern. He is a dainty, lisping fellow, who also happens to be very fascinated with archaeology and the origin question, although he pronounces it Owigen, the mystery of which world was humanity's first. But after Dorwin departs, Hardin reveals that he has been recording Dorwin's words and subjected them along with the treaty to special analysis. Dorwin has not said anything of value, and the fine print of the treaty essentially allows Anacreon to do whatever it wants. Worse yet, following Dorwin's departure, Peren has warned Anacreon that the Empire will protect them, which it actually won't. The board hopes that perhaps the vault will include instructions from Harry Seldon, but Hardin scoffs at the notion they must solve the problem for themselves. Out of options, Hardin conspires with his closest advisor, Johan Lee, to engineer a coup that will oust the board and place him in full control. On the day the vault opens, Hardin and the board witness a holographic recording of Harry Seldon, bound to a wheelchair. He reveals that the Encyclopedia Project is not the genuine purpose of the Foundation. Instead, Seldon has engineered the situation so that they have been cut off from the Central Empire, and that along the path toward a new empire, they will face a series of crises, of which the current situation is only the first. They are not permitted to know the nature of the crises, because the psycho-historical path laid out for them would be offset by their knowledge. As they reach each crisis point, only one option will be evident for them, the compulsion of which will lead them forward toward the completion of the plan. The recording ends, and the balance of power has changed. The board is convinced that Hardin has been right, and without their even knowing it, the coup has been enacted, and they are no longer in power. As for Hardin, he now sees the solution to the problem faced by the Foundation. Okay, so what do you guys see in this book going on? Like what overarching themes or motifs or what kind of keeps coming up in dialogue that you see on the planet Terminus? 
So we've talked about how foundation is intended to kind of mirror the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And so I see plenty of corollaries to that as we go through this second part. We have this collapse of imperial order on the outskirts of the galaxy. Like the empire is starting to lose its grip on on the outskirts and these kingdoms are breaking away and they're kind of starting to flex their own muscle. So that's very much corollary to an empire that's crumbling, like the Roman Empire crumbling and other kingdoms kind of becoming their own thing and saying, well, we don't need you anymore. And I think the foundation acts as its own kind of corollary too. Um, really, as Selden brings up this idea of the encyclopedia and preservation of knowledge, really the foundation kind of seems to be analogous almost like to the monastery or to the church or something mm. as like the preserve of knowledge and the people who maintain some sort of sense of order. Right, so like they're even estranged on a different planet, much like the monks being set apart in their own monasteries way off in the countryside. I could see that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and they are also, you know, it's like they are endorsed essentially by the empire. And so there's this interesting kind of relationship, kind of like, I suppose this gets different depending on whether you're talking about the Western Roman Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire, because the relationship between church and empire um, in East and West was markedly different. Whereas in the Eastern Empire, the, it was really the church was kind of in the hands of the empire and kind of shaped by the empire. Whereas in the West, it was a little bit more the other way, where the church was kind of like the driver, like they were in the driver's seat. It, it's kind of different depending on where you go. This is almost more in this part of the book, more of an Eastern Roman Empire kind of feel. Yeah, uh, a helpful church history saying for that whole concept is in the West, the um, the popes acted more like emperors, and in the East, the head of the church um, was the emperor. Interesting. So here on Terminus, you could you could, we kind of see the the board of trustees kind of always representing the the empire against the mayor's wishes right yeah they yeah. have the empire in mind they're depending on the empire mm -hmm. yeah they, they they can't even think of a way where the empire's not involved directly after 50 years they're still thoroughly of the belief that that all is well and that whatever happens the empire will be able to fix it which kind of makes sense in that scenario if you're used to an empire that is thousands of years old like america is only 200 in some i mean i can't imagine being in a country that's been around for five or six seven eight americas much less thousands and thousands of years right maybe that's why they feel unshakable because there is actually no graspable history for anything other than that they don't seem to grasp grasp the concept that the whole point of the foundation is that the empire has already begun to fall and they're meant to preserve all of this history and all of the um all of the good stuff that came out of the empire for the next empire right last episode we talked a little bit about the distance that can exist between um like the interests of specialized experts and like the lives of people out in the ordinary world for lack of a better term um 
sometimes there can be this disconnect. Last time, we talked about it in terms of how there can be experts out there who really know what they're talking about, and yet because they're so distanced from other people that they're not really able to get through to them. I almost feel like this part kind of this part of the book kind of flips it around and we see sort of the the bad side of that distance because in this case the all of the encyclopedists and the board of trustees they're so specialized that they're really just kind of buried in their work and they actually are kind of out of touch with the legitimate needs of Terminus's population yeah, there was that line when Perrin is saying that they can have no other interest besides the encyclopedia. I was like, man, that's rough. Right. Yeah, there are there are a few different moments where the board of trustees really hammers away at that. Even at the very beginning of the section where Perrin is working at his desk in this conversation with Hardin, you know, it's like, I can't be taken up with all of these municipal affairs. The encyclopedia takes up all my time. It just is like encyclopedia tunnel vision. Like, they are so focused on it. And, like, to the encyclopedists, Terminus is not this world that you live on. Like, it's the encyclopedia factory. Meanwhile, like, for 50 years, life has been forming up around them. There's, like, a population and a society. There are people with interests and worries. And they just haven't perceived it. And, and meanwhile, the board of trustees, they're still the ones in charge. And so they're not willing to budge on it, even though the world has changed drastically around them. Yeah, it goes to show that you have to kind of adapt to your context and to the time, even if you've got something really important going on, even if the encyclopedia really was what was going to save the empire, they still needed to sustain the planet. They still needed to connect with people. So ultimately, it was probably a good thing that they got up got kind of burst out of that bubble. What did you guys think of the Anacreon representative and the Empire representative? Obviously, those two are supposed to be... Um, I I can't tell if they're supposed to be foils or just comparisons. The Anacreonian representative comes in, and he's... While he's a product of his culture, all that he can understand is, I got a gun and you ain't, right? Right. Um but he also has a lot of like presence and power and you can't really deny it at all. Whereas like Lord, is it Lord Dorwin that comes from? Yeah, that and he comes in and he really doesn't even say anything of worth for five days. Right. Um, so I wonder if that's supposed to like be representative of where they come from or if they're supposed to interact with each other. I wanted to know what you guys thought. I think, you know, what you bring up is a really good point. Anselm Holt Roderick is, he wants to be very direct about it. Like, he wants to cut to the chase. He doesn't like all of the dancing around that Peren is going through, saying like, well, we don't, we're not part of the kingdom of Anacreon. We are a protectorate of the emperor. Roderick wants to cut to the chase and say like, hey, this is what we want. We want to offer this to you. And really, he kind of, he kind of comes in kind of like a mobster, really. Where it's like, oh, yeah. you know, this is a pretty nice uh, planet you got here. It'd be a shame if anything were to happen to this planet. You know, it's like... Hey, you should we- buy fire insurance before this place goes up in flames as he holds a match. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, he says, we want to offer you protection, which you desperately need. And then he kind of says under his breath, from us. 
and then he goes. <laughs> and um, but yeah, whereas Lord Dorwin is um very much he he dancing is his profession, like political dancing. And yeah. he manages to say nothing that will incriminate or place any sort of obligation on the empire for protecting terminus and nobody even realizes it because he's so deft of a of a politician or diplomat so it's pretty amazing much too old a hand for that let's leave the work for tomorrow i was like yeah i think he is a too old a hand what lord dorwin does do is bring up the origin question oh yes the origin question yes the origin question um yes <laughs> and that's another connection point to pebble in the sky isn't it yes i thought that that was really interesting because in pebble in the sky um i mean one of the major plot points of pebble in the sky is the discussion of which world was the first on which humanity ever existed and there are some people who don't even believe that that was the case because it's been so many millennia since anybody knew. And Lord Dorwin, 12,000 years after Pebble in the Sky, is quite interested in this discussion. And so, uh, like we said, this was written, this part of Foundation was actually written earlier than Pebble in the Sky. This discussion in Foundation is actually influencing the other, quite likely. Yeah, it's easy to... Not easy. It's really interesting to see how Asimov kind of spins off of himself and, you know, takes ideas that he's put other places and then expands them elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating that in one book, we actually have an archaeologist going to the planet and figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. And in another book, it's just, you know, this is this is an interesting question. Right, and Pebble in the Sky, this was like almost a matter of life and death. Yeah, it ended up being a matter of life and death. It was terrifying. It was intense, and it was very, very... Emo it was emotionally unavoidable, right? Whereas for Lord Dorwin, um, it was, it's a fun, interesting question, and I read some books about it, and that's fun. Yeah, nearly 11,000 years have passed, and we're back to the same questions that were seemingly about to be answered um, in, in Pebble in the Sky. I, I do think that that is quite, quite creative. Well, I mean, if you're going to write uh, pretty much anything on theology or philosophy, you're still going to go back and talk about Plato. You're still going to talk about Aristotle. You're still going to quote some of those guys. So, you know, we, we like old things and we like our ideas to have pedigree and tradition and have this kind of really long conversation through the ages. So it makes sense if Lord Dorwin is kind of a parallel to the council that he is obsessed with this kind of old seated idea. He is. This really long conversation. And he's kind of narrowed in too. That makes sense. And then you could from there say that Roderick, what was his title? Anselm Hote Roderick. Anselm Hote Roderick. <laughs> I will never get that right. Anselm Hote Roderick um, definitely doesn't have much care for pedigree of intellectual thought. He's like, guess what's happening right now? We just got out of a war and you're in the way. Whereas Lord Dorwin, yeah, you're talking about like, let's talk about the pedigree of long thought. And it's interesting how they 
obviously one has to take precedence over the other in some t- in some situations, but you should always I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. That's just interesting. If we're talking about a corollary to the Roman Empire and a corollary to monasteries, um, as we look at specifically Western European history, um, the Roman Empire collapses, and then we have all knowledge. Well, most knowledge is preserved in the church, and it's preserved through the monasteries and the kind of universities that spring up through there throughout the Middle Ages. However, if you were, um, let's say, a Germanic tribe or like the Vikings, things like that, they had their own cultures, but they were also a little bit more concerned with um, what's going on around us right now. Or say the feudalist systems of England and some of those territories where they're concerned with local politics. And if you're a peasant living outside of a castle, you care about the lord in the castle and if he's going to protect you from the guy, you know, 20 miles away. So now that we've interacted with what's going on in the book and what where we have seen it before, um, let's talk about some of the themes that we're seeing consistently through the last part and this part of the book, what, what do you guys think is happening? Is there any kind of tensions going on? Is there just a recurring motif? I think one thing that I see every now and then is um, who your authority is, like what kind of call to authority you've got, where on the council they're always calling back to somebody else, where the mayor is starting to say, hey, what if we have, were our own authority? And then... Anselm Roderick comes in and says, I'm my own authority. <laughs> right. Um, so it seems like there's a battle for who is the authority for you. Is right. it you or is it somebody else? Right. And yeah. Or is it a construct that you're putting your that you're putting your hope in? Right. Whether it's the Empire or whether it's Harry Seldon. Yeah, Harry Seldon. That's a good point. That's a good point because we had one of the council members bring up the vault is opening. Have you all forgotten? The Deus Ex Machina is coming, basically. Yeah, that's Hardin's kind of his objection. Like you're really yeah. just waiting for something to come and save you. First, you're waiting for the Empire to come and save you, even though they can't. And now you're just hoping that Harry Seldon is going to pop out of the vault and tell you exactly what to do. And I think that the topic of authority does come back to the issue of the board of trustees because they're the ones who are in authority and yet they don't really know how to exercise that authority in a way that's going to be effective and helpful for people. Like their authority is all being got geared by them toward the encyclopedia, not toward the good of the people of Terminus. Yeah, they're a little short-sighted they're a little narrow-minded about what is necessary for the world right and hardin i mean if we if we keep talking about authority it's like hardin appears as sort of like this grassroots authority figure who arises because of the needs of the moment the people of terminus basically demand that the board of trustees not be all that there is because apparently they're not doing a great job And so they want some sort of municipal government. They want someone who actually has their interests at heart because, I mean, 
you want someone who is in authority who actually cares about you. And that's why he's elected as the first mayor. It sets up this big tension between these two kind of locuses of authority. And, um, and Hardin wants to, wants to flex some muscle and actually have a say with the board um, on, on behalf of the people. So he's a very compelling character in that regard. And he's also quite savvy as well. Like I enjoy reading the parts of, 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 the, of all these conversations where he's trying to figure out what to do. It's great. But I can't help but feel like there's a little bit about Hardin that is shady. Even though I know that he's kind of this character who is fighting for the people. And a spoiler will ultimately be successful in kind of saving everyone. Um, he's still the way that he does it is through deception and kind of manipulation. So I'm a little, I'm not sure I'm okay with that. It's true. On the one hand, he has a manipulation over the news media on Terminus where he's not the owner of it, but everyone seems to kind of know like his control over it comes through other means. Conveniently, when a push kind of started for Hardin to be able to sit in on the meetings of the board of trustees, conveniently, the newspaper uh, also starts pushing for it as well. You know, like he's got some strings that he's pulling. Also, um, as we see at the end of, of this part that we're discussing today, once the situation gets bad enough, He's the architect of a takeover of the of the government of the planet. And so and this happens before the vault even opens, like they're decided that they have to do this even before the vault opens. And it's actually known to them that what they what the board of trustees were going for, what they were fighting so hard to preserve is not actually the point. It's not actually real. It's not actually the point, which. I really want to talk about that, by the way. Like, I think we would be remiss if we did not talk about that scene at the end of this, uh, at the end of this section. I love it so much where the vault is open and Selden's message comes. Um, I remember the first time I ever read this book, I was like in middle school, I think. And I didn't read it again for, I don't know, 20 years or so after that. It was a few years ago when I finally came back and read Foundation again. And it was so much more moving that scene where this knowledge of what is really truly going on is revealed to them. We talked a little bit last time about how Harry Selden, even though he wants what's best for the galaxy and is being accused of conspiracy, he really does have some conspiracy stuff going on because yeah. <laughs> the encyclopedia was not the all in all that he tried to make it be. He used it. He used it politically to get them to terminus. In reality, he he organized it so that the people of Terminus would intentionally be cut off from the Empire and have to face the problems that were psycho-historically predicted on their own. And they would have to push their way through 1,000 years, knowing that the plan has been plotted out for them, essentially. And um, just this moment where you realize, where you see the encyclopedists kind of totally deflated. And they realize everything that they've been giving their life to, it's not as though the, the encyclopedia stops, because it doesn't, but they, they realize suddenly that they've had it wrong. And Hardin, mysteriously and strangely, but in a cool way, is recognized 
to, even though he didn't know it, he kind of had it right. He, it's, it's important to not get so swept up in the past, like we've been talking about with Darwin or with the encyclopedists, even like, you know, just categorizing knowledge and, and using that as like saying, well, that's science and that's the scientific method. No, it's important that you maintain initiative and that you, um, that you find the way to solve the problems and actually push forward. So even though Hardin didn't know it, he had it, he had it right. And so it's just such a cool scene uh, at the end of that, at the end of this section, even though it's like this massive cliffhanger. It is really a massive cliffhanger. You're like, oh no, what's going to happen next? Quick interjection today on Jacob tries to predict the rest of this book. (laughs) Have you read Um, part three yet? I have, but I had this prediction before I had read part three. So I'm going to be honest and tell you what I thought before I had read part three and hopefully the rest of the book. There was the conversation with Lord Dorwin about the nuclear reactor taking just half a planet gone. Um, sorry, that sound effect was supposed to imitate the words exploding, nuclear reacting or exploding on a different planet and a different planet having half its population just wiped out. Um, I think the only reason that conversation would come up is if Hardin himself is going to use the same technique to get the Anacreonians off Terminus. That was your hot take. My hot take, which is most likely wrong, but I'm having fun with it, is that he's going to let Anacreon do the landed estates thing on half the planet or more. He's going to put a nuclear reactor right in the middle of them and just let it deteriorate and let it go boom and just oh man look at that it's a sad sad thing but now you guys are gone but isn't Hardin's whole thing like violence is the last resort of like foolish men violence is the last refuge of the incompetent there you go I could see how um, one interpretation would say oh that's not violence it's clever thinking and another one would be yep that's straight up violence like I said probably very wrong and as we were saying you know I mean if you are coming to it fresh for the first time and you've read part two, but you haven't read part three, I mean, what you're hot taking is, um, is based on the clues that you're following. And yeah. so, um, and also we've already talked about how Hardin is not this completely innocent guy, you know, he's crafty mm-hmm. and, um, and, and highly passionate. And so it is interesting at the end of that, at the end of the part where it basically says, you know, the solution to him was, as Selden had said, obvious. Um, It's not obvious to us at that point when you're reading it, but whatever it's going to be, it's going to involve a lot of craftiness on Hardin's part, because that's the kind of character that he's being built into. Yeah, I'm picking up. This theme in Asimov, at, at least from in foundation of manipulation being of the of the masses, I guess being necessary. Mm-hmm. So you know, with psychohistory, they kind of see the trends of where people are going, determine the best trend, and kind of try and push history there or push many people there and i'm not sure that i'm comfortable with that because it's assuming that you know best it's true manipulation of the masses yeah i mean it is we don't need an ethos for that there's a reason the very reason that they're not that there were no psychologists placed on terminus is because 
the knowing of the outcome of the desired goal psychohistorically undercuts the reaching of that very goal. And so the, the, the masses who are subject to psychohistorical analysis can't know that it's going on. Otherwise, it distorts the entire, the entire enterprise. Yeah, I just, I'm not, it just feels a little, a little greasy. Just feels a little unclean. So before we move any further, let's have a quick break and then we will be right back. Greetings, Galaxy listeners. I'm Glenn McDormand, co-host of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, where we are reading through the novels, the series, and the short stories of the science fiction and fantasy legend Gene Wolfe. And because I'm here with you, listening to Jacob, Jason, and Stephanie talk about Asimov, I know that you enjoy in-depth discussions of themes and motifs, literary allusions, historical contexts, and moral and philosophical questions So we would love to have you with us on our journey, too. We are just about to start the novel piece, so now is a great time to start reading along with us. Or you can check out our back catalog of over 100 episodes. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And come find us and our other book club podcasts on claytemplemedia.com. Stephanie, you left off with um, a greasy feeling because Harden and people like Harden are using manipulation on the masses, which implies that their worldview says that they know better than the masses. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into talking about worldviews and specifically leadership in difficult times. So we see Harden manipulating the people. But he's also pulling the planet together and, you know, he he ultimately saves the world, the encyclopedia and the crisis. So the outcome is good. I'm not sure how I feel about his methods. He he does it through a takeover, right? Yes. A coup. A coup yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so the question becomes is like. That's a huge step that you have to take. Is this the right thing for Harden to do? Internally, you know, as far as the book is concerned, the book steers you toward it being the right thing to do because the board of trustees ends up being hopelessly narrowed in on the encyclopedia. And that means that there's this image in Harden's mind of what is the right way to go about things, the right way to lead. And it ultimately leads him to make a choice of overthrow of power. And it does seem as though if you're on the other side, then, then he is seditious. But if you're on his side, then you are doing what's necessary. Yeah. So let's make a comparison with, um, with the American Revolution. You know, we tend to look at the American Revolution as a good thing. Like, it's one of those things that you learn about in elementary school, and they're like, yeah, this was awesome, and we're really excited about it, and ultimately it was a really good thing, and now we have this just wonderful nation, and that's how it's kind of presented. 
And you look at all that information and you're like, how could people have been loyalists? How could people have sided with the British? Um, how could there have been all this upheaval and unrest? You know, it just, history makes it seem so clear cut that this was, yeah, this is the right thing to do. You know, I'm understanding more and more how that could be murky, how it could have been a hard decision. One thing I appreciated in the book was Hardin's ability to tell his number two guy, like, hey, well, I know we're doing this coup, but they're not bad men. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I really appreciated that. Um, and his whole demeanor wasn't that of they're awful, they're evil, they have to be stopped. It was all in the sense of they're not what's best for us, so we need to take this unfortunate step. And I think that's a mentality that's been, I don't want to say lost, because that's pretty big, but no, I, man, I see it what feels you're lost. Yeah, it feels no, lost in America. T- today's environment is so much more incendiary. There's such less um, willingness to, to look at the humanity of people. It's a lot easier to objectify people. But uh, in, in connection with that, there's a quote from this section of the book where Hardin is sitting in a meeting with the board, and it says, uh, the quote goes, Hardin, as he sat at the foot of the table, speculated idly as to just what it was that made physical scientists such poor administrators. It might be merely that they were too used to inflexible fact and far too unused to pliable people. So, I mean, on the one hand, that illustrates some of the other things we've been talking about, how the the board and the encyclopedists are kind of, they're too tunnel visioned and they are legitimately out of touch. Um, but it also illustrates that he's not just objectifying them, villainizing them, and that's the end of the story. Like he is thinking about them and wondering what it is that makes them tick and think the way that they do. And really that, you know, they have their place. They have their place and their importance in the society. It's just that they might not be the best fit to be the ones in charge. Like, so Terminus needs the encyclopedists. It's just that when the encyclopedia becomes the all in all, suddenly those encyclopedists don't really seem like the the people for every single job, especially leadership. Yeah, I think maybe Asimov is kind of engaging in some self-reflection, whether he knows that or not. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like Hardin especially um, goes into this with his brain, primarily. Like, mm-hmm. he's he's using logic, and he seems a little cold and calculating. And he's doing it because he loves the people, but he's really attacking this from kind of a logical brain point of view. And I think the assumption there behind that is that people are able to do that. That people are able to approach mm. solely from a logical point of view or solely from a brain point of view. And um, it's interesting that Asimov is criticizing the encyclopedists for doing the same thing, for approaching life just with their brains. Human beings don't, they can't really do that. You know, even if we're saying that we're really being logical and we're just arguing from our logic. You still have a body, you still have feelings, and whether you know it or not, your body and your feelings and 
you know, those different things affect our logic. Well, the best logic thinkers I've ever met or read are those who are in touch with their whole selves. Yeah, because you can't say that logic is the highest good. You, you, all of you is good. That's how you get Vulcans who make mistakes. Spock. Everyone loves Spock, but the reason we love Spock <laughs> is because he's getting more and more in touch with his emotional side anyway. Yeah. Often his, his complete logical attitude often gets him in trouble in episodes of the original series. Like, exactly. It doesn't so, always work. So There is a great quote in Voyager where... Tuvok makes a decision in the first season or two that the captain disagrees with and she she's kind of haranguing him for making this decision and says something like um you know you can justify anything with logic and he spits back this really poetic line of my logic was not an error but I was that re- that reminds me of the whole thing with cutie in in i robot and the chapter was reason where the whole the whole kick of the of the chapter is you know you can you can deduce anything from reason uh because of the presuppositions that you have so the other thing i want to talk about is this idea of the big picture and i think we've kind of touched on it already um selden seems ready to uh, sacrifice pretty much anything for his view of the big picture. What are some of the things that you view Harry Selden as being willing to sacrifice? Well, there's the guy in the first section that gets to go to jail. And uh, Gal Dornick, was he killed? Yeah. No, he was not. Okay. No, but there was a there was a, a a minuscule chance that he could be executed, but he was not. Selden himself goes to jail and is <laughs> exiled. He's stuck. Um, he's got this whole society that, you know, uprooting 10,000 families. That's a big deal. Huge, man. That's true. And it's possible that they could fail in their, um, in, in what's needed of them. So he is putting them on the line and they don't have a clue. I guess the thing that comes to my mind is that the validity or non-validity of Selden's actions and plans really does kind of hang on the plot device of psychohistory as a reliable tool mm-hmm. in as much as psychohistory is a reliable tool and, and is able to project the data accurately, then if, if it projects it accurately enough, then Selden ends up finding it his utter responsibility to, to do what is possible to guide the galaxy through the future. If he sees 30,000 years of, galactic anarchy in front of him and if the data is clear enough to project that that is that much of a certainty then it becomes a, a an incredible burden upon him to to ensure that that is not that does not actually happen but you're right that does mean that he's got to be right on this yeah if he's wrong then he is then he is taking so much authority and so much uh, license to do something that affects thousands, millions of people. Yeah, I just want to poke at this assumption that that we can have that kind of authority and power. I don't know. It seems, even though there's a lot of burden on him and it feels like a great responsibility, 
Okay, so we're getting into this Spider-Man type. With great power comes great responsibility. You know, even even though there's great responsibility there, there is still... I don't know, it still seems to me like an unhealthy view of power. Even though he's got a lot of responsibility. Yeah, like, like when you're the one who's secretly in charge, uh, you know, masterminding the whole thing, that does get problematic. I would say that many are much more comfortable with the notion of collectives of people who are working together and sharing authority and kind of equalizing it among themselves, distributing it among themselves so that more people are in the know. And so Selden's kind of unilateral control over it. I mean, there's the Selden project and there are several people, you know, several thousand people who are involved in it. But when he is kind of the big head of the project and really knows stuff that no one else knows, then it does start to become kind of uncomfortable and kind of creepy that that there's to a certain extent nobody who can do this in the way that Selden can. Yeah. Actually, um, that brings up an interesting quote from a book that I have been reading on leadership. And it's written by Joe Saxton. It's called Ready to Rise. And she has this great African proverb in there that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm. Ooh. So, yeah, I know. Isn't it? It's just a good proverb. Little little proverb there. Yeah, we like to think that I make change on whatever level I push myself to. Yeah, I'm not I run you the can't com- make change. Yeah, I run the company. I'm going to be the one that calls all the shots. I'm the one who's going to be interacting with all these levels. I can see what you mean, how, like, in a, in a Western mindset, it's about me being able to change everything, whereas I think the the longest-lasting change, which is what you're saying, is brought up by lots of people institutionalizing change like public education well this has been a great discussion i'm really excited to see where terminus goes yeah i'm excited for the next section i think asimov is pretty on the nose talking about religion in the next section so i'm really looking forward to getting to talk about that and bring back up this whole idea of power well then if we're closing it down for today we hope that you've enjoyed the episode and um, if you want to talk to us about it, if you agree or disagree with us, if you just want to share your thoughts, there are lots of different ways that you can do that. One way is you can contact us at, on Facebook. Uh, we're just known as Galaxy Podcast. You can email us at contact at galaxypodcast.com. And if you go to galaxypodcast.com, our website, you can listen to all our other episodes if you haven't yet. You can stream them directly online. And also, you can find several subscribe buttons that you can click on so that if you have a particular podcast app that you love, you can find us there. And uh, you can even support us through our Audible trial offer that we have. We do hope that you would come back next time and hear more of what we have to say about Foundation. So thanks very much for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy.